0: Hi and welcome to Everywhere, I am your host Daniel Scheffler. The commandment for the week, thou shalt be prepared for anything. I have this theory about travel. If you prepare yourself for just about anything, you can let go of pesky expectations. And you could just let everywhere unfold. And yes, it does. In my case, for better, or for much better. And this is how I felt in Burma, or as some people call it these days, Mainmar. I deliberately didn't fill my schedule with too many activities. I tried to have no thoughts about this beguiling place. I even resisted to think back to Burmese Days, one of my favorite Orwell books. I just wanted to be open to this unexplored country and whatever it wanted to show me. Some local food, perhaps, hikes in the Grand Mountains, and hopefully some pauses in between to meditate. With a recent change of power and some very helpful international attention, Burma is finding itself somewhere fascinatingly new. And perhaps it may even be totally reborn. The country's hope is now riding on its lauded hero and freedom fighter, Sun Tzu Ki, recipient of the 1991 Nobel Peace Prize. But of course, this hope is precarious to say the least. Perhaps the state councillor, which is really a prime minister, Sun Tzu-ki, is now caught in a wild crossfire, where the facts aren't crystal. Conceivably, the world should be giving her the benefit of the doubt. But then again, power does all kinds of crazy things to people. Could she have done more? Almost certainly. It's not really imaginable that she couldn't. But how much of this genocide, as the United Nations dubbed it, was or is out of her hands and control? And if she takes a hard line, could she once again see the country fall into military rule? (laughs) And then there's the persecution of the Rohingya people in the north, ...who have been forced to flee to Bangladesh. Burma at this very time is a complicated and partly dark place. But so was South Africa when Nelson Mandela came into power in 1994. And as I said, there is always hope. Burma has erected their very own symbol of change. But this adjustment has not come without a cost to many lives and to the heavily adjusted expectations of the improvement of a growing economy. Pausing to think whether your political views should dictate your holiday plans, well, here's your prompt. How does the LGBTQ community feel going to a country like Brunei, where it's punishable by death to be gay? And what about someone of a certain race or religion who no longer feels welcome in America? How do they feel about coming here? Hold on to that thought for just a minute while I bring on my next interview with Shavo Odigian, the bassist from the band System of a Down, who also has the marijuana and CBD brand 22 Brand.
1: When I tour, I, like, I, I used to hardly see the place. It would be like, play the show, have a quick day, and then you're out. Right. It's just recently, like the last maybe four years, five years where I've been touring and I'm like, wow, I've been missing out on like seeing these countries. Right. So it's like, I'll wake up at 6 a.m. See, before also I had other issues. I would be drinking, I'd be doing other stuff. So I'd be falling asleep at four or five o'clock. By the time I'm right. up by one or two, I'm already, uh, you know, by hey, time, know, the time the day is over, right, yeah, and then right. there's a show. So now, you know, I'm not doing any of that. So boom, I'm up, let's go. I go work out first then I go see the city. I'm so with you. That's the thing now. Well, so my
0: rule is if I travel, to whatever place for business, I have to add a little play time. Of course. Like, it's the rule. And sometimes more people she, are like, oh, there's no time. And I'm like,
1: I wish I made that rule for myself earlier.
0: Oh, you know sorry. what I mean? you didn't need me. Yeah, I
1: needed you in my life. <laughs> 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 Great, bro. Uh, any influence is good influence for me, you know, when it comes to like um, culture, you know, gaining culture. It's like right. I love that. You
0: right. Know? How... Um, You were born in? Armenia. Armenia? Yeah. And your family came
1: over? In 79. It's my 40-year anniversary. <laughs> wow, Moscow <muscle laughs> yeah. tough. We just had a family reunion on Saturday where the clan I'm on my dad's side mostly, but I'm talking about my dad's cousins, like everyone. There was like 30 people that moved from Armenia. Wow. But we moved. The thing was like the borders were closed in 79. Right. So we had to move to Greece, for Moscow, then right. then. Rome, we were in Rome, I remember that, I was five years old. So I was in Rome, we had to become, like as refugees, become citizens. And then we were able to come, we moved to Queens and I was gonna be East Coaster. Wow! But then my mom's side, kind of the few people that came with my mom, stayed in Queens and I was in Queens. My dad's side moved to LA. So my dad had to go with his mom because my dad's dad had passed away before I was born. So he was the the man right. of the house, right. not gonna leave his mom alone. So there was a gap for like a couple of months. And then my mom moved us there cause I wasn't gonna be raised without a dad. That was her right, thing, right, you know? Right, right. Which, you know, God bless her for that. So I can, I love my family. You I know? can tell, that's so, beautiful. Yeah, so I was a Hollywood kid. I. 1336 North Kingsley Drive. Boom. Oh, boom. I'll, I'll never forget that address because that's the first address I was actually like representing, you know. Right. like
0: I mean, there are lots of Armenians in Los Angeles. It's like a big community. I yeah. mean, my friend Eliza, who's Armenian, talks about it all the time.
1: Huge. At the time, though, it wasn't so huge. Oh, really? And it's funny the the street I grew up on is now in a community called Little Armenia. Oh. But it wasn't Little Armenia back then. Right. <laughs> it, was right. just, you know, it was just Hollywood. Yeah. Little nothing. Little nothing. Right. It was Little Hollywood. And that's I skateboarded. My parents worked. Over nine to five. It was like from eight. My dad drove a lunch truck, so he uh, would get up at like 4 a.m., be at work by five so he can get the breakfast uh, hours. But isn't this, this is the immigrant experience, right? Like This is the thing that... One bedroom apartment until I was 15 or 14. Right. And just grinding. I saw my parents grind and I just... My grandma raised me mostly there, you know, because she was the one watching me when my parents weren't around. But I was in the street, man. I was skateboarding. I was skateboarding. And I grew up around, you know, MS, that gang Mm started on my street. I was on Kingsley and Fountain. So that's where it all started. So I would see it and I I was inspired. I was, I wanted to be, uh, I swear to God, I really at some point I wanted to be a part of having a posse, this, but they wouldn't, it was like they knew I was that kid that was a skater and that he wasn't a bad kid. I was a good kid. They kept me out. Like there was hmm. brawls going i'd get involved and they would push me aside and they would like take a knife or whatever a, a bat and i would just would be watching this i would wow. see it uh, thank god knock on wood that that happened and so yeah that's how it happened and Amazing. i just got i learned like you know the chop suey video was made at a motel that was down the street from my street off of sunset in kingsley this is about toxicity. The whole album was about like LA and all the like the bad things and the good things and how people like learn. And I learned all that stuff. I saw homeless people for the first time there. I saw drugs, I saw there. I didn't do any, but I saw it happen right, right. right in my, I had a parking lot and there was homeless people doing heroin and I would see that, you know? Right. So we went back to that motel and they gave it to us for a day and we shot the chop suey video and crazy, right? So every time I watch that video, it's not just a video, it's like, right.
0: It rem- it's you, it's your childhood Yeah, home. nostalgia. We have to go back to the Armenian pond. As a child in Armenia, tell me what that was like.
1: My memory is not as good as it would be because was, I was five years old. Right. I remember snow, a lot of snow, because I'd play in the snow there, and it would snow in Armenia because we are a mountainous area, you know? And I remember my family, and I remember friends, and I remember where I lived, and where my grandma lived. Everything else I think I know from pictures, and then I'll like... My mom will show a picture, and then the memory of that picture would come up of like what right. happened before and after that picture. Right. But like I said, most you know you usually remember after four or five years old better. Right, and that's how I kind of know if I was if if it happened to me before five right. or not because right. of the
0: Good timeline.
1: Yeah, I'm like in Armenia, and then I'm not, and right. then I'm traveling. At five years old, I'm traveling from like one country to another, not knowing the language.
0: What is like, that memory? Tell me that. That was crazy. Memory.
1: That's crazy. In therapy, they tell you. Um, a move at a young age is the second most traumatic thing wow. that can happen to you. One is death and two is a big move. Dude, I moved countries and not just one, I went from one and then I got in Rome. And then I, at that time, you're five years old, this is home now. All of a sudden, no, Queens, okay, this is home now. All of a sudden Hollywood and that was home. And that right. became home and that was, you know, that right. that is my home, how I see it. Cause I learned a lot there.
0: Right, so I, it's trauma. But it's magic, it's right? Magic. Because you're five. Yeah. So yes, it's, of course, it's, it's traumatic. It's traumatic it's magic, magic it's, uh, right? It's a new word we made it's it a up. Great, great little phrase. We're calling it the great album name. Like, <laughs> Traumatic Magic. Right. Salman Rushdie forget magic realism. We're going on <laughs> Tra- traumatic magic traumatic. realism. Okay, we're gonna do something with that. Yes, we have to. So tap into that magic. Like, do you bring it into your music? Do you bring it into your life? I mean, like, I must
1: have. Right, It must have gotten in, it brings a lot out of me. Imagine not knowing a language and being put, and I've never been away from my parents because they've always been close because I've been traveling and so, and I'm only child. I didn't have a brother or sister. And all of a sudden I have to go to a public kindergarten. And I remember talking to my mom in Armenia one second, looking away, my mom's gone. And there's this American lady going, come have a seat. And I'm like, huh? Like, (laughs) what does that mean? You know, totally not prepared. Mm. And just having the trauma of like being abandoned. That's how I felt uh, in kindergarten. I mean, most kids probably feel that way when their mom's leaving. But this is a kid that is new to the country and new to the language, new to the culture, new to the people, new to everything, you know? And it was like jumping in an ocean, not knowing how to swim and go. Okay, let me start with the doggy paddle. And I think I'm by six, seven, I was doing the breaststroke. (laughs) Wow. And look at you now. Yeah, look at me now. You know what I mean? You're like water aerobics. (laughs) (laughs)
0: That's great. How did you, like the Armenian genocide, like how do you think about that?
1: Well, here's what happened. After that, my parents did some thinking. And there was an Armenian school in Hollywood called Alex Pilibos. And it was pretty close to where we lived, where where I grew up. So they had made some money. They had gotten jobs so they could make some money. So they, instead of putting that money away for a house one day, an investment they invested in me and they put the money into schools it was more than rent to go to a private school wow. so i did that and it made it easier the armenian school reminded me where i come from and my culture and right. my past and that's where i started learning more about the armenian genocide my parents never told me about the armenian mm. genocide at five years old you know and it's not like you tell your kid by the way you know your people were destroyed less than 70 years old, you know, ago right, right. here. <laughs> and and um, that's why you don't know, you don't have a family tree. You know, I've, I found out I don't have a family tree because they were all destroyed. Wow. That's crazy, right? That's insane. So that became a thing that I always wanted to tell people about. I just got lucky that I joined a band and started a band with three other Armenians. And that became a kind of a mission for a second because at the time, no one even knew what an Armenian was. Right. You know? None less knowing about the genocide, right? Right. But it took four guys to talk about it. And yeah, through the years growing up, every year, 1915 was brought up on every April 24th and every other day around April 24th. And then there's the big marches in Hollywood. And I was a part of that a lot of times. And it made it a thing, a part of my life. You know, it's like, imagine having a past like that and people not recognizing that it is. It wasn't just the fact that it happened. It was the fact that, the world didn't recognize it as a right. genocide or as a Holocaust or as anything. They looked at it as casualties of the war. What war? Can our Ar- Armenia wasn't part of the war. We weren't <laughs> we weren't right. fighting anybody. Right. They came and attacked us and killed our people at night. They took the the scholars and the men, the strong, the the priests, the heads, the politicians. Took them and then told the women and children, "We're saving you. We're going to take you away from this." And as they walked, they. Got raped and pillaged and murdered and awful things. I don't even want to talk about So this le- learning this at a young age, it instills some craziness in you, right? Like, wow, this occurred to our people. My great-grandma was in there. My great-grandpas were in there. Right. That happened to them. Insane. So um, fast forward, the band, it was our, when we met up, it was something we all had in the back of our minds. It's always there. It's always, and it was like, let's make it more of, you know, known to people that this right. happened to our people. Let's just talk about it more. we wrote a song about it. no when they asked about the song, we talked about it. And then we just kind of, it became a thing. Best reward was on our first tour, we were playing Texas and we we're in an RV. So no security. People could come in, knock on the RV door. Hey, you're the guy from So it was a kid and his dad. The kid was I like, couldn't be older than 13 or 14. And he asked us to sign a history report that he wrote on the Armenian genocide. And it was because he heard it happen. It was not in anywhere in those textbooks. And he learned of it from us, from the song Pluck. And he went and he did research on it, find out, wrote this thing, got an A plus on it. And his dad was proud and his dad brought him to us saying, good for you guys to bring my awareness to my son who he would never have learned that if it wasn't for you guys. So we said, imagine that we did pictures with the dad and it was like-
0: But you know, no amount of Grammys, can Could do that. Ever. Hell no. That's the point. Oh, like, yeah. So for me, like the thing that I tap into on my show is that only through travel are you
1: able to really see these things. Because otherwise it's just in theory, in right? Theory, yeah, you need to go to Armenia. To feel what they're feeling exactly. or else you wouldn't know. People here are out of touch. Armenians here don't know what's going on over there. Right. They only know what they're seeing on, Armenian tel- on the Armenian channels or what they're reading on. But, you know, all that's skewed. Right, Everything is skewed, all media is skewed. How crazy is the news outside of America? The CNN here is totally different than the CNN. When I'm there, I finally get news around the world, I find out what's happening here, I find out what's happening there. People we would never, countries that we don't talk about in America are talked about over there. There exists, there are people in the world. We only get told about specific countries, oh, this happened there. This happened in Iran, this happened in uh, Afghanistan, this happened in Iran, this happened, okay. What about the rest of the world? There's a lot of mm. shit going on there too. Mm. You could tell us about that too. I'm not saying don't tell us about Iran or Afghanistan. But there's a lot more news mm. out there that we don't hear about.
0: So I would love to inspire people to travel not only to Paris, Italy, China. I want you to go
1: to places like Armenia and places like. Lao, you're right though. That's crazy, but who would? Burkina Faso. But it's your life, you know. It's like most people when they have the chance to travel, they're they're okay. The majority of the world doesn't travel as much as you do, so they don't get the opportunity, or of me, to do that. Right? You know? Because when they get the chance to travel, they're like, "Oh, we heard of this place that's so popular and big. I'm going to go there." Like when I told you Kavo, you're like, "I'm not going to hold that against you. I get it." Because <laughs> there's so many better places to be.
0: What I feel is that travel is the thing that. Taps you into humanity. It's such an easy way in. Whether you're in Cabo, you can do it at the resort. Mm-hmm. Or whether you're going to Armenia, you can go to Cabo and speak to your barista. Mm-hmm. The guy who's serving you oh, who's yeah, Mexican. You could speak to that person and be like, oh, wait, here's a little way into the country that I may not get in Cabo, because it's
1: very commercial. Yeah, yeah. I but mean, they, it was for to and they had fireworks so, <laughs> in Cabo. Right. See what I mean? <laughs> yeah. I but mean, I, like, I really... You're so right. You're you're, you're 100%. people to travel with more of that. And speak and learn from people. Right. That's what you're saying, yeah. But,
0: like, I want to go to Armenia and speak to people and understand that experience, because it's not on the tourist hotspots, no. right? Like, it's... Mm. There's a responsibility. So let's use our effort to do that.
1: It's like gaining culture from people. That's what it is. And it's like, but it's effort. And like, like I said before, most people, when they're traveling, they want to, you know, not everyone's thinking to do that. Okay, so how do we inspire them to make a little more effort? By talking about places and talking about like what you know and what you've seen. And that might make someone who's listening be like, hey, I want to go see that and do that. And you are, you're you're doing it by what we're doing right now. This is what we do. Oh, thanks for coming. Yeah, no, it's happening. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's happening. We're doing this it by is now. it. We're Great. doing it right now because you can't make someone do it, but you can make someone kind of Envious of you because you can do it, and then make me right. when they got the minute of they if they have the dollar and they can totally go because it takes money and time. That's it. Right. You have a little bit extra money. You have a little bit extra time. Right. You could do what you right. what you're saying, which is so amazing. Though, like I love amazing. that. Like it is amazing. I'm I'm gonna be traveling soon, which I'm not gonna ta- I can't talk about yet. Great, but um, I'm looking forward to doing that. Yeah. Yeah, I want to play, but I'm also looking forward to those days but off. But you have to promise me that you will. Oh, I'm 100% doing okay, it. Great. Are you kidding me? No, okay. I'm not going all I'm expecting all the way. an email from oh, you. Oh, I'll send you two. I'll I'll call you. <laughs> text you.
0: I want to know a little bit about travel with the band. A little more.
1: I mean, you've done how many countries? Like, you've traveled... Shitload everywhere. (laughs) A lot, I haven't counted how many we've been everywhere. Especially in the beginning, we would go to the obscure places. Like when we went to Greece, we'd go to Thessaloniki, not just Athens. Uh, We'd go not just to Milan, but we'd hit up smaller uh, regions where maybe the pay wasn't so much, but we would still go to get the exposure. Now it's more about hitting mass. You know where I miss playing the little shows in those little cities instead of playing the big ones. Um, I remember getting lost in Tokyo. Tell with me. my outfit on, about to get on stage. So I walked downstairs. Cause, um, I had just started DJing at that time. It was in 98. And the club, you know how in Tokyo and most of Japan in the major cities, like Osaka, because there's no land. So it's built like this, right? High, you know, up and down. Like a mall is like in a building and then you go in the basement and then you mm-hmm. go in like 20 mm-hmm. stories up. And the club was in a building like that. And it was like offices, a club, <laughs> stores. There was like a hi-fi shop downstairs that had the Roland 505. They had it at a lot cheaper than America, you know, and I still, we hadn't made money yet, you know, it was, it was 98. We haven't made a penny. So I was like, guys, cause we had, we didn't have a day off there either. So we had to play the show and go to somewhere else. So I had put on my clothes, like my outfit to get on stage. At the time we wore a lot of makeup and stuff. And I went downstairs and I bought it. And I remember I had to go cause I didn't have my passport to get the That duty free, right? So I said, okay, I'm I'm gonna go to the hotel. It was right down the street. I'm gonna get the passport and I'm gonna come right back. Ran to the hotel, got out of the hotel. Didn't know which direction to go to, and it all looks the same. And here I am. (laughs) No one knows I've left the building. (laughs) They didn't know I went back to the hotel. And imagine this guy wearing red shorts and a white beater, makeup on his face, bald with a long goatee, walking around the streets of Tokyo with when it's packed and I'm asking people and everyone's avoiding me it was like and (laughs) the Japanese are so beautifully polite they're so polite but they're like they're getting the eye contact and then going like this and walking away you (laughs) know like help help and then at some point I just sat down I remember someone from the club finding me (laughs) and running me upstairs that wasn't the craziest story but it's a story that's a sweet Um, story yeah
0: well thanks for spending a little time with me in studio my pleasure this is lonely
1: hell yeah thank you for having me
0: Let's take a break to hear from our sponsors and we'll be right back with more travel from everywhere. Thanks for sticking around. Let's hop back to Burma for a moment. Bordering the brawny China, India and Thailand, it's taken Burma an extensive time to start flexing some of their muscles. With over 135 ethnic groups, the Republic of the Union of Myanmar has been a place of turmoil in the last few decades, with its military rule, blocked bank sanctions from the U.S., and a serious halt on almost all tourism. But also on the economic sphere, Myanmar sold itself short to its neighboring markets and is now fired up to take back the reins, from manufacturing of machinery and equipment to the thing I love most, intelligent tourism. Now, with the country finally making its debut, tourism is steadily increasing by as much as 18% according to the Ministry of Tourism last year. Myanmar is riding on what the travel industry loves to call, in parentheses, authentic experiences. And as much as I roll my eyes at statements like that, Myanmar is decidedly different. As you arrive, you meet locals that somehow don't see you as a tourist, but actually as a potential friend. Every street corner seemed to offer me that. So perhaps I was onto something here. The country is oddly receptive to just uncharted adventures, unspoiled from the heritage sites in the cities of Yangon and Mandalay, To the forest and hills in the north of the country where I went on some slow hikes. And right down to the white beaches that remain empty for miles and miles in the south. The low-cost airline industry has also taken hold here, with six new airlines starting in the last few years. And then of course the brand new phone networks and semi-solid internet connections aiding growth. For the first time, cell phones are available to ordinary citizens to purchase, whereas previously it was reserved for commercial use only. The endless posters from telecommunications companies are strewn all over Yangon, from the airport right into the city centre. On my first trip there, as I arrived, the country received their first batch of SIM cards giving access to the internet. As I walked around town, people were lining up to buy them. People were finding out, for the first time, what Facebook was. I wondered how good or how terrible this will turn out for them. SIM cards used to be thousands of dollars. Only the very rich could afford them and rent them. Now, finally, SIM cards are cheap. And with the simple world connection streaming, albeit slowly, the country with more than 60 million people can finally ask bigger questions about freedom of speech. With beautiful Buddhist temples still fully intact and hundreds of solid gold pagodas scattered across the country, the cultural richness invites tourists with inexpensive prices from food to lodging. Can you believe the insta-scammers haven't descended on this place? Maybe we should encourage them to approach this whole country differently. I'm open to suggestions here. Trekking around Kyokme, in the northeast of the country, growth is evident. Although there are no tourists, the dirt-floored cafes are filled with locals reading the regional newspapers and slowly watching YouTube videos on their brand-new smartphones. The sweet, milky teas are passed along with the phones around the cafe, and the men spit their rouge Beetle juice into the dusty streets. Hundreds of brand-new bikes shine as they speed through the little village, an obvious sign of growth and all this exciting new blood. There was this one cafe that had a dozen computer monitors and at every single one of them sat a young monk, maybe aged 10 or so, clothed in pink robes, playing computer games, watching YouTube videos or befriending people from across the planet on Instagram. The lines snaked out of storefronts and people's excitement was washing down the streets and I was doing broth tastings from street vendor to street vendor, each with a different family recipe, watching this amazing thing happen. In the meantime, Burma quickly became my food heaven. No photographs allowed, said the street vendors. It made me smile with such delight. So here's the menu. There was mohinga, a fish broth with rice noodles, chickpeas, and splashed with turmeric and lemongrass. And to this day, it is still my great obsession. And then, of course, the tea leaf salad, made with fermented tea leaves, nuts, lime, cabbage. A bitter smile of a dish. My guide, Mo Set, told me, as he tucked into his bowl of tea leaf salad, that he thinks that people from rural areas are nicer than the people from the cities. They are honest, he said, and friendly, and they live away from greed. And that's why they are so special. He takes a small number of tourists into the wilderness, near the village that he was born in, and encourages them to meditate whilst trekking. Before becoming a guide, like so many Burmese boys, he was a monk and received his free education and English language skills at a Buddhist center in the forest. He told me that Myanmar's people remain religious in the most charming and engaging way. Their temples are cozy, each one almost like a little neighborhood unto itself. Buddhists go to their temples not only to worship, but also for afternoon naps and casual gatherings over tea. Of course, that is exactly what I had in mind too. A new religion, perhaps. The way of life for Myanmar people is hard, it seems to me. They have to struggle each day to survive. But somehow, there seems to be a contentment. Perhaps this hope their new prime minister has brought has changed things. In the villages, five hours' walk from the nearest town, life is uncomplicated for its inhabitants. Mornings start at 4am when the cattle are released and the smells of open fire cooking start their wafts from inside their wooden homes Locals cook their national dish, la Pette, a mixture of pickled tea leaves, roasted nuts, green chilies, sometimes dried shrimp and beetle larvae with vegetables. And they top this off with plenty of fresh lime. And here the custom is to share it with anyone that comes into your home, which is of course what I did. I went into everyone's homes, I slept on their sheepskin rugs, and since I was unable to speak the language, I just kept smiling from ear to ear, all the time, like an idiot. As I was understanding more about this gorgeous country, I discovered that one of the government's plans is to open up restricted areas and allow some selective tourism to venture in. With the world hungry for new destinations and explorers wanting to find this new frontier, as we should with the madness of over tourism, it is perhaps Burma that holds the right Golden Key. With the correct attitude towards tourism, a high-quality approach, and not allowing for a destruction of all this beauty, Burma might be the next paradise. Let's see what the very near future holds. It's funny. I put down my smartphone and prepared myself for just about anything and everything, as the country was picking up their smartphone one at a time. That's Kiss I'm in Toronto, the great city of Canada, and I'm with my new friends, Aaron and Katie, who also have a podcast called Alpaca My Bags. We talk about ideas of bringing attention to the border and how you really can almost not prepare for anything. I just flew in from New York, we're in Toronto, we're at the gorgeous library downtown, and I'm with my new friend, Erin, who has an amazing show called Alpaca My Bags. Yes. I flew to Toronto to come and hang out with you, because I love your show, and because I think you're super smart and very nice, and I love the Canucks, so what can I say?
2: Oh, the feeling is very, very mutual. So thanks for having me. Thanks for having me.
0: I think we need to start by giving people a little idea of what you do and how you do travel differently.
2: Sure. I have been traveling since I was really young, and I would say that it's been a journey in learning about myself travel as much as it's been like literally a journey around the world. It's also been a journey in learning who I am, gaining confidence in myself and becoming empowered in a way that I definitely wasn't when I was younger. And so the way that I've thought about travel has really evolved the more that I've traveled. And I think in my later age, I became more critical of travel and the way that we travel. And I've in recent years, been trying to challenge that in a way that I didn't when I was younger. When I was younger, I was really into the like, oh, yes, let's stay in the party hostel and like go out for beers till four in the morning. And now I'm more about slow travel to places that aren't on top 10 lists. And I like to observe and think about identity a lot as I travel. And that's A lot of what the podcast that we host is about, it's about challenging people to think about the world through a lens that isn't their own. So for example, like I live the world as a cisgender white woman, and that impacts the way that I travel and the, the experiences that I have as I travel. And through this podcast, we try to talk to people to find out how our experiences differ from theirs.
0: This is why we're friends. This yeah. is why. This is the exact reason why I adored you Aww. from first listen.
2: Oh, I'm so glad.
0: I, I'm i always looking for people that are doing things differently, that are staying away from the list, that appeals to me in a way that that sits deep in my heart. Your belief system and my belief system touch each other. And I think the tricky part about that is it does form part of a little bubble that you and I are in. We live in, in a tiny little existence where you try and reaffirm your beliefs around every corner. And travel has this amazing ability to take you out of that, to show you, oh, let me challenge my beliefs. Let me throw out these ideas and start again. And sometimes you end up at the same place, but then you know it's true because you've erased it and redrawn it in exactly the same way.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And you're right, it's so easy to get caught up in this echo chamber where it's just the same kind of media that you're consuming at all times. The minute I knew I really liked you was when I heard you speak on your podcast about how you feel about travel influencers. And that to me is the prime example of an echo chamber within the travel industry because these influencers are portraying a very, very specific and inaccessible experience of travel that shows one side of a very, very complicated experience. And it quite infuriates me.
0: Right. Well, the classic... Insta scammer photo is the Maldives overwater bungalow <laughs> yeah. with set person or persons doing some activity. And people like that. People like to live in the glossy world. But I think my job is to remind people that yes, travel is glamorous and fabulous. And who doesn't love a hotel? A fabulous resort. But I need to know more than just the surface shit. And travel doesn't want to do that. Travel is caught in an aspirational place. And I'd like to challenge us to get out of that. The problem is I sound preachy. The thing is, like, I don't want to sound preachy. Like, I just want to build something better than me, something that's more than me. Right? You understand this.
2: I totally understand. I think as soon as you share an opinion, you're ripe to be considered a preacher. No matter what you're talking about, no matter who is listening, there's always someone who will hear what you're saying as preaching because it goes against their own belief. This has been my experience.
0: Well, I love to think that my opinion is wrong. So I love to like give my opinion and then be shown that my opinion was wrong. Mm -hmm. It's my favorite thing. My husband does it to me all the time. I'll say something and he'll be like, God, Daniel... Have you really thought about this? This is such emotional crap. And he'll unpack it for me and I'll go, oh, yeah, my opinion's totally wrong. Great. Thank you. And I'll adjust because maybe we spend too much of our time trying to tell our story opposed to receiving the story. And this is what I want to inspire people to travel, right?
2: Mm -hmm. And I think you make a really good point. And this is something we've discussed On Alpaca before, travel is about listening and learning. And while you're traveling, the best way to learn is by listening to the people around you, whether that's another traveler that you meet in a hostel or a cab driver or someone who's sitting next to you on a bus. I've learned the most incredible things about countries that I've visited just by listening while I'm there, more so than what I can Google before I find what I learn while I'm actually living the experience is so much more insightful and interesting.
0: I'm going to pause this right here for a moment for our sponsors to weigh in. But do come back to hear more about where I've been scooting around this week. The time has come for more of everywhere. And now back to Alpaca My Bags, the podcast from Canada. What is one of the greatest lessons you've learned whilst on the road?
2: Um, one of the greatest things that I've learned traveling is that you can only prepare to be unprepared. And by that, I mean, you can never know what you will encounter, who you will encounter, what things will go wrong while you're traveling. And so I think I've learned, and it's through a number of experiences that have taught me that it's about your mental state and going into a trip or a place knowing that you have no clue what will happen. You can plan to no end, but plans change.
0: I love that feeling. Very
2: quickly, I love that
0: feeling. I think about those moments, even in like Bolivia on a train or on a bus or on an alpaca. You know, I I think like, what magic is here? Let me just see. And I, I do obviously plan stuff, but I find that... When I stop the planning, all this stuff starts to happen, which you just can't foresee. I am so grateful that I have this in my life because I have friends in every city. Because I'm just open, making friends. Come on, bring it. And some are duds, it's true. Michael says to me, I have to like, you know, weave through some of these crazy people you pick up along the way. But for the most part, like I meet such wonderful humans that are willing to To challenge me. This morning I walked Ella on the trail up in Westchester and I met the loveliest woman and we talked and I walked with her and she's looking after her son's dog and we just chatted and I gave her my number and she texted me earlier and she was like, what a delight. And I was like,
2: (laughs) ah, Kismet.
0: It's beautiful.
2: Yes, I think this is why I fell in love with hostels so much. I know you
0: have mentioned hostels like 12 times. I
2: know. And it's funny because... I don't financially need to stay in hostels anymore. I can afford a hotel, but I often choose to stay in a hostel. And the reason is because I meet such incredible people. Some of the greatest friends that I have, I have met in a hostel and known for a brief amount of time. And we have continued to stay in touch over the years. And like you, I have friends all over the planet that I've known for a little snippet of time. We shared some beautiful moments together in a foreign city, and we continue to be close.
0: That's so funny. My friend Maggie Casella is texting us right now. I'm free. Come where I am. We shall. We shall come to you shortly. Well, to, to go back to the hostile thing, should I admit this? i've never stayed at a hostel
2: <gasps> you have not
0: so i guess i'll have to now
2: i'm gonna make sure you do Well,
0: you and i we have a plan okay yes. i'll come stay at a hostel with you okay any
2: way you want Let's well pick a random city in the world and i'll <laughs> pick the hostel
0: fine i'll pick the city you pick the hostel
2: done <laughs> I like that
0: idea. I mean, as a travel writer, I often talk about how one should do everything and not say, no one's ever invited me to a hostel. So that's probably why I haven't been. This is
2: your official invitation. Thank you.
0: Am I getting one in the mail?
2: Yes, I can arrange that. Thank
0: you. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I feel like um, I never say no. Like cruise shipping? Okay. River rafting in the Amazon? Okay. And some of the stuff, when I um, tell Michael that I'm going to do that, he's like, you're insane. You're insane. That's crazy. I would never do that. You know, like 10 days um, horse riding across the steppe in Mongolia. It's insanity.
2: It's fabulous. Do you feel that you were like this always? Or is this something that you've become better at the more that you've traveled?
0: I would like to think that I've always been like that. But the truth is that I probably have become better. Because you see that it works. So you keep wanting more. I mean I'm an addict, right? Like I'm a total addict. But I'm okay with that. I try to change my addiction of travel and turn it into something positive and show that there's a self-care element here. What it really is 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 a desire to challenge myself because I wanna I wanna be better in this world. I wanna contribute more. I want to be able to make a change. I want to inspire people to get off the list. And to think about travel as a way to find themselves, because it's free, basically. You could travel to Prince Edward County an hour, two hours from here, and have the most magical time of your life. I've been to Drake on the Lake. That's right here. Anyone can do that. You can hop on a train and go do it for basically no money. You can go camp out there. Like I think that you could do it for a weekend for less than $100 if you camped out there. Mm -hmm. Right. So like, it's not about the money. It's about, are you willing to go and do that? Mm -hmm. Uncover yourself?
2: Yeah. A good example of that, I think, is if we're going to talk specifically about Toronto, I have lived in Toronto for so many years and had always heard about this place. It's called the Scarborough Bluffs. And It's a very Instagrammable location, actually, because it doesn't look like Toronto. It has these beautiful white cliffs that overlook the lake, and it truly looks like you are on the ocean. And I had heard about this place so often, and it was always in the back of my mind that I should go because it takes an hour to get there on the subway. It's so easy to get there. So I had to really put effort into it. One day I thought, like, tomorrow I'm going to Scarborough Bluffs. And I told my partner, tomorrow morning we're getting up, we're not sleeping in, we're going to the subway, and we're going to go to Scarborough Bluffs. And he was like, that sounds absurd. It's so far away. And I told him, Lucas, like, it's an hour. It's not that far. We've never been. It looks incredible. It's right in our backyard. Let's go and we made the journey and it was very long and we did get lost along the way but it cost us three dollars there three dollars back and it was well worth it wow
0: Mm -hmm. guess who lives in scarborough bluffs maggie maggie casella (laughs) you know it's funny like uh, she's become a sort of my thought of canada is her like an open-minded hysterically funny human And then I'm like, that's what the Canadians are like. You know, they're like so funny and polite and lovely. (laughs) I love it.
2: It's true, but I will say.
0: It's a stereotype. I get it.
2: It is, but it's also, I'll admit, I find it problematic sometimes because often when I travel, people say to me, oh, you're from Canada. Canada is so amazing. You have an amazing prime minister. You are so great to people. You're so open-minded. But the reality is that it is true, especially in cities, but we do have our issues.
0: Right. Um, so it almost time- feels like people, they washing it away, mm-hmm. thinking like, they are no issues. Look, it's Trudeau. It's,
2: yeah, so that they is glorify. The yeah, I think that Canada is often glorified, and I think it could be because, in comparison to what's happening south of us, right. we do look really great. But that doesn't mean that we don't right. have immigration problems here as well.
0: There are problems. I mean, you've done it so much better than most other countries, but there are still problems.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: I mean, from the outside in, it does feel like I was leaving Gilead this morning, <laughs> and. I was reading something fascinating this morning. It was like, maybe we were all too busy thinking we are handmaids when we are actually aunts. Oh. Fuck, that floored me. I I nearly lost my balance when I read that. It was in the New Yorker. It was the review of um, Margaret Atwood's new book. I'm going to have to sit with that for a little bit and think about it. So I haven't really processed all of that, but it did feel very good to uncover that, to start thinking about that. And of course at that moment it was the perfect moment to read it because I was flying from Gilead into Canada (sighs) and I was wondering about immigration and how this is not new. What's happening at the border, the southern border of America is not new. It's happened for centuries. And it happened in Asia, happened in Europe, it happened in Africa to African tribes. It's human nature. So instead of trying to fight human nature, we have to find a way to, I don't know, what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to bring awareness to it. So should we go travel to the border and see, bring awareness to it, make that a travel destination? I, I don't know. I can't tell. But to me, it's like, I would rather go and see and understand what's happening than have the media tell me. Like AOC went down there and she spent time there and they vilified her. And I think she's a congresswoman. She should go down there. She should understand.
2: Well, and you raise a good point because it's quite okay for people to travel to other countries and visit refugee camps or to visit slums in India. So why aren't we visiting places in our own country that are dark? I think that it says a lot that we're willing to go somewhere else on the planet and watch as an outsider Because it speaks to our complicity and our unwillingness to examine ourselves and what's Mm. happening at home.
0: Fuck. I think we've uncovered something that's kind of hard to even fully chew on. Mm -hmm. Because if you and I go to the border and we just work on some empathy at the border, maybe that makes a difference. Maybe that that appeals on a greater level. Because I'm not going there in a political way. I mean, in some ways, everything is political. But I think that you and I, as travelers, should instead of Insta scamming and being like, "Hey, look at us in a heart-shaped Swan bed, floating above, like doing a yoga pose on top of the fucking roof of a overwater bungalow in the (laughs) Maldives." Maybe we should go to the border and be like, "Hey, like, let's set up like a Burning Man at the border." And I'm sure someone's going to tell me this is offensive, but I want to know why it's offensive and then I want to tweak this and figure it out and make it a way that's not offensive and does actually help. Does that seem okay?
2: It seems okay to me. And I think that the way to activate it into something that can actually promote change is to use it to amplify a message, okay. amplify a message about what is actually happening there, because we do rely on media outlets and let's be frank, they're not that reliable. And so I think that when people receive a message from someone like you and I who aren't directly associated with like Fox or CBC News, it's a lot more reliable. People are more willing to accept that message than they are from a large news house, I would say.
0: So is the tricky part of this that we need a celebrity to come with us because they have voice and they have audience and they have numbers?
2: Oh, that's hate that not thought really disgusting. me. Of course, it disgusts <laughs> me too. And here's the thing. I'll tell you about an experience I had in India. I wanted to see, you've seen the movie Slumdog Millionaire. Of course. I think everyone has. It was shot in a particular slum in Mumbai. And my partner and I really wanted to see it. And we talked it over, and we understood that there was a problematic element to this, that it was, in a way, poverty tourism, that we wanted to just see how bad the slum was. And I went into it assuming that it would be really bad. When we got to the slum, it wasn't at all what we expected. It was really like a community, and it completely shattered everything we had assumed that the slum would be. So beautiful. But... We didn't take pictures. We didn't share that we had been there. We accepted the experience as something that was for us to learn through. We didn't use it to promote ourselves as like, oh, look at us, like we've gone to check out the slum that everyone says is dangerous, that you shouldn't go to. We use the experience just to prove to ourselves that as hard as we try not to go into travel experiences with assumptions or stereotypes in mind, it's impossible not to, because we're constantly influenced, like just by influencers on Instagram, but also by like every form of media that we're exposed to is influencing the way that we feel about something. And so, the only real way to know was to go to the slum and see it for ourselves. And so, what I'm saying is that that experience was fulfilling in that it changed how I felt and what I knew about India and about that slum and about what it means to grow up in a slum or to live in a slum. And that was very valuable to me.
0: I, um, I could spend the rest of the day just talking to you and, and kind of uncovering the stuff, which I, I love because I feel like I don't have the answers you and I are figuring this stuff out, like our thing about the border. I think we should brainstorm this, figure this out, and let our listeners help us figure this out because half my listeners will be pissed that I even say something like this and the other half will be like, we have ideas. This is great. So, okay, let me piss you off and let me thrill you, but somewhere in that we'll figure this out. And travel is that it's not perfect and you can't get it right every time. Because the point is that in that mess, you, you're aiding yourself to be a better human, and you're finding not only your own humanity, but humanity in others. That's the point. That's why I got on the plane this morning to come here. Absolutely. From Gilead to Canada, <laughs> the world will continue.
2: You know they shoot it here in Toronto, right? They do.
0: Under his eye. <laughs> Thank you so much for um, spending your Saturday afternoon with me. This is wonderful
2: it was such a pleasure
0: if um, anybody would like to get your podcast please tell them where to go
2: the podcast is called Alpaca My Bags you can find it wherever you listen to your podcast so that's Spotify Google literally anywhere we also have a website which is www.alpacamybags.ca thanks
0: for hanging out connect with us On Twitter at EverywherePod, Instagram at EverywherePodcast, or on the website at EverywherePodcast.com. I'm Daniel Scheffler. I'll be seeing you everywhere.